Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Absurdity, where we talk about and address all things absurd in religion, culture, and society. And today I am joined by someone that I have known almost my entire life uh, and a um, an old friend of mine. I won't say I'll still say good friend, because I actually do think that I could reach out to you at any point in time and and we could have a great conversation and I could trust you and everything. But, you know, we haven't we haven't kept up necessarily. Um, but I am, uh, someone I respect greatly and that is Joseph Gosen. Uh, so Joseph, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. Yeah. So you, uh, work in first amendment law. I don't know if there's like a better term for that. Um, uh, the, the term I guess would be media law. Um, that's fair. And I could see. Yeah. 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 I, I guess the that. term would be, the term would be media law. And in doing so, we interact with the First Amendment a lot because the First Amendment is very broad. Um, you have religion, speech, and assembly. So I focus mostly on speech rights uh, within the media and also, you know, public figures and, and citizens. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And and yeah. I think that you know what you're doing. So you're in New York City. Uh, you're a litigation associate for Gordon Reese Scully and Manchikani. Um, yes. Graduated from Southern and went to UF for your JD. So this is going to be it's going to be a good conversation. Um, <laughs> I think I'm I'm excited for someone of of your caliber to to go through this because First Amendment law right now is I mean it's been a hot topic for all of America's history. Let's be honest, but I think there are certain things that have brought it into a new spotlight. Um, social media in itself has brought that into an entirely new spotlight. But you know we've got. We've got social media companies like Twitter or YouTube cracking down on misinformation campaigns. Um, you've got like the pandemic video, which in my opinion, rightfully was removed from mm -hmm. uh, by mm -hmm. YouTube several <laughs> times. Um, I remember I was trying to watch a um, an alternative video on the Ahmad Arbery case. Um, some guy was like, what the media isn't telling you. And I was trying to see, like, I want to know what people I don't agree with are thinking and why, and the arguments they're making, because I believe it's important to be knowledgeable mm -hmm. that. Um, but they, it, I, it took me forever to find it cause it kept getting removed. Um, and that was, that video never got big. That video never got more than a few thousand views. So with, you know, Twitter says it's going to flag any content that violates its rules, finally, including Trump in that, um, you know, you've got so much going on and so much, uh, so many ethical questions so many um legal questions regarding what these companies can or can't do with censorship um and then what the government can't do i mean just in michigan i just read this today actually because i was looking into this a bit um because i was curious about the history of the nra and gun control and what was funny is in the michigan capital they would not allow signs into the capitol building when protests were happening, but they allowed guns in because they didn't want to infringe on second amendment rights, but they wouldn't allow signs in because of, um, because they would damage, uh, they could potentially damage things within the building. And even in addition to that, they were confiscating things like umbrellas from people because those could be used potentially as weapons. But a gun, Correct. it's like a big Correct. hammer. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. The like, gun is the gun's just for show, gun, obviously. It's a tool. It's a tool. Yeah, guys. It's just, yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah. it just yeah, but like even that brought this into the spotlight of like, mm-hmm. okay, what where I think there's it's worthwhile to have a conversation about a to get a more uh a deeper understanding of First Amendment law, how we relate to it, and what it actually what impact in in, in application it has for us as human beings. So in Americans. Absolutely. This is definitely a United States centric conversation. Um, but I do want to ask, why are you in First Amendment law? What what made you decide to go that route as opposed to any others? Yeah, I I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated law school. I had I had no earthly idea. Um when I started, I had no idea. Actually, it's a lie. When I started, I knew or I thought I knew that I wanted to do international work. I, you know, I started and I said, I want to be an international lawyer. No idea what that entailed. No idea what it was. It just sounded cool. Um, and then my first semester, I took, uh, you know, we all take the foundational classes towards contracts, property, constitutional law, all that stuff. Um, and my first semester, I took a torts class. And the professor that was teaching that torts class is one of the seminal um, First Amendment scholars in the country. Her name's uh, Larissa Litsky. She's now dean at Mizzou. Yeah, University of Missouri Law School. Wow. Um, yeah, she is amazing. So I took her towards class and I really liked her. And what I found out later, you know, skipping ahead, what I found out later is that a lot of uh, First Amendment work is really just defamation and defamation's a tort. So that's kind of where the foundation started. So I took her class, um, really, really enjoyed her as a person and just kind of ended up talking to her. I didn't know who she was, you know, I didn't know she was who she is when I took the class and I talked to her, you know, second semester and said, Hey, like, I think you're really cool. You know, I'd love to work with you, you know, be your research assistant, just, you know, make some extra money in law school, looks good on a resume line. And then she said, okay, like you can do that. You know, you did well in my class, but you need to take more of my classes. I said, okay, you know, what do you teach? She says, oh, you know, I teach media law. I teach internet law. I have a seminar on um, the internet and media. Okay, you know, that sounds cool. So I, you know, took media law my second year of law school and First Amendment law. So there there were two separate classes. First Amendment um, focused on speech, which is a big chunk of the class, but it also focused on religion and assembly. And then media really focused on, you know, the media and the First Amendment, so speech. Um, so I took her class, loved it, and was like, wow, I want to do this. I think this is super cool. Um, so I took her, that class, and third year I took internet law, kept working with her, um, and just kind of met people in the field, you know, started talking, and I graduated in 2016. So this was, I graduated as Trump was starting to run. Um, And my first year of practice was when he actually did win. So it was very interesting just kind of seeing the development of interpretations of the First Amendment from both sides, red and blue, um, and how they would apply it to their arguments. And I wasn't doing First Amendment work when I graduated. Uh, I, I was working in Orlando at a couple of firms wanted to get into it, you know, um, kind of made my way through, found an opportunity in New York and grabbed it as soon as I could. And then moved up to New York about a year and a half ago or so. Gotcha. So yeah. the, 
I, a, I think that's really cool because you, you met a professor who a is qualified in the field, but like really, I know most professors are qualified in the field, but there are some professors that are teaching something that they haven't had any personal experience with in 30 years. And (laughs) so that's what I mean when I say that, but like that passion and that kind of that, that, you know, she took an interest in you. Like there's a lot to be said there about that relationship being really formative, I think for, for this. So that's really, really cool. Um, and now do you, you know, in, in your current work, are you working mostly with, with, corporations or businesses or are you working for individuals you know who, yeah, who are so you when usually I, representing yeah so when i moved to new york i started at a place called the media law resource center and that is a nonprofit think tank uh that works with media organizations so think the new york times cnn nbc uh you know all those media organizations and you know our job was really to monitor developments in first amendment, intellectual property, um, you know, data privacy, that kind of stuff, monitor those developments and then advise, um, practitioners and, and media organizations on what was going on in the law. Uh, And then we put on a bunch of conferences and a bunch of other stuff, but that was like my main priority. And then I was also hopping on working, uh, on written briefs and submissions with, uh, media practitioners to uh, federal courts around the country. So we worked on um, a Freedom of Freedom of Information Act case on behalf of another think tank that was trying to get records from the ATF. And the ATF was saying, "No, you can't have them," and they were citing like very obscure, very obscure parts of FOIA, the FOIA Act, and you know, us and some other uh, media organizations got involved and wrote what they call an amicus brief or friend of the court brief in support of this media organization that was trying to get the records from the ATF. And that went out to the ninth circuit, ninth circuit in California. And I think oral arguments are going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to see what happens with that case. Yeah. But it was really cool. So I got a lot of like practical experience, like hands-on experience in the field. Um, But it was only a, uh, it was only a a one-year fellowship. So after I finished my fellowship, I went to my firm where I do uh, commercial litigation. I, I do commercial litigation, a little bit of products liability litigation. And then once they found out that I had this experience doing First Amendment work, I got roped in with some partners around the country. We're a national firm, so I got roped in with some partners around the country doing First Amendment work. So long-winded answer. The short answer is we normally represent... Um, it, it's, it's media defense. So normally I'll be defending uh, organizations against defamation claims, such as, you know, the Times, CNN, so on and so forth. Uh, So we work with those organizations. Um, There are private claims. um, You know, there there are plenty of private claims that go back and forth for defamation, slander, and all of that. But primarily when you're dealing with a speech issue, it's usually with a media organization being sued by a citizen, like the Times being sued by Trump. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And for those who don't know what FOIA is, that's Freedom of Information Act. Um, so if anyone was like, what is that? That's what that is. Yeah, um, sometimes you get lost in the jumble and you're just like, oh, everybody knows yeah. what this is. Yeah. yeah. No, I just needed to flex because I've I have watched Suits, so clearly I know everything there is to know about law. At this point, Ryan has a JD. That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I. I'll and a photographic memory. It comes with watching that show. Ryan um, Becker Esquire. Get it right. <laughs> yes. So um, what we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to read the First Amendment out loud. Um, that way, this isn't just some random, obscure, 
ethereal thing that we are referencing. Um, but usually, as is tradition on this show, we define the terms that we're talking about only so that everyone ha- understands the framework that we're talking about this within. Uh, sometimes there, you know, people have different understandings or ideas of what something means, and so if we just talk about it, we may people sometimes lose sight of what we're at or misunderstand what we're saying. So, um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. And then, uh, we're going to launch into some questions about this and what your experience has been and knowledge and, um, yeah, hopefully get some good, uh, good stuff. So, uh, here's what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people, um, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Um, interesting how the language of the Constitution actually holds up like intelligibly uh, <laughs> over over the centuries. Um, but I guess my my first question to you is: What are some things that you think, or you have seen, people commonly misunderstand, misinterpret, or misapply about it? Uh, you know, I know that we're going to jump the gun. Uh, and I, I'm going fine. to, you know, I'm going to talk about, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that a lot of people misinterpret the First Amendment as to applying to private uh, organizations, such as social media companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also people misinterpret it and say, for example, let's say that I was wearing a jacket that said, um, you know, F Trump. And, you know, F his response to the coronavirus response, right? And say the cops came and, and said, you can't wear that, take it off. You know, I think people get it conflated where they say that offensiveness can be regulated by the First Amendment. It's not that broad. Uh, I think people broaden the First Amendment out to a place where it doesn't necessarily need to be. Or, for example, if you are saying something uh, that somebody else doesn't like and they tell you, hey, don't say that in here. Say you're in a supermarket and you're saying something and the manager comes up and says, hey, don't say that in here. You need to leave. And you say, well, it's a free country. I can say whatever I want. The First Amendment doesn't apply to that supermarket manager. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very limited in that it only applies to government actions against citizens not private actions against citizens. And I think people tend to broaden it out to a place where they have this unlimited right to say whatever they want to say or do whatever they want to do. And it's a much more narrow amendment than people give it credit for. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that absolutely makes sense to me. I think, you know, when I, when I think about a question like that, or I think of the first amendment, I think that the two words that, um, uh, the two words that people get caught up in are number one, the word freedom. Um, and then number two, um, who, uh, really the word law. Um, and in, in regards to what you said, I think freedom is the misunderstanding. They misunderstand that freedom actually does have boundaries. Um, and, uh, then the law being that this is something that a government institutes not something that a private corporation institutes so um that's kind of that that's the idea there and so i find it interesting that that we um especially christians if you're if you're a christian um by already you believe that you are the most free within the boundaries that god set up 
for you, right? If, if you are someone who follows the Christian faith, there isn't this idea, there isn't an expectation as a Christian that you can just do whatever you want. There's a specific thing that God has called you to do. So I find it even more interesting when I hear Christians say it's a free country, I can do whatever I want and miss and just completely misapply what freedom actually is. Yeah. You Uh, know, I think a lot of times Christians will take the first amendment, uh, the the religion clause, right? The, you know, government shall not make a law, you know, they stop, I guess it's the establishment clause, right? And they forget that that's there. And I think that's very worrisome. Um, a lot of times when legislation is being drafted, I mean, if, if we want to get really controversial, we can talk abortion and how a lot of times abortion laws are drafted, not from a legal standpoint, but much more so a religious standpoint. And I think when you start injecting religion, and I'm not saying Christianity, any religion, when you start legislating from religion you run into an issue with the first amendment. And I think you just run into an issue in general because not everybody believes the way you do. So how can you legislate from a position of how you believe when, you know, Bob down the street thinks that the the great pasta monster is God, you know, and he Mm -hmm. is within his right to think that. So how do you have like flying spaghetti monster? Exactly. And to jump off of your point of, uh, you know, freedom is an absolute, I found this quote and, and, and I think it's important. It just kind of lays it out in no, you know, uncertain terms. It's from Jacobson v. Massachusetts. It's a Supreme Court case from a little bit ago. Um, the Constitution does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly free from restraint. The community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic and may at times under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the general public may demand. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of sums it up, you know, yeah. in no uns- no unclear terms, like freedom isn't the freedom from restrictions. Everything has boundaries. Everything has, you know, everything has a limit. And the idea that freedom is unlimited isn't it's not supported by by law or fact and it's not and it's it's freedom it's also free it's not freedom from consequences of your actions that's the you know it's not just restrictions but also you know what happens after i say the thing that i definitely should not have said (laughs) ever (laughs) um that's yeah and and honestly the the most despicable use of this is people who are fighting against political correctness culture or PC culture. And they're saying, um, you know, I can say whatever I want and um, you know, you can't, you can't tell me I can't and we're going now you could, you really could never say those things. Those things were always inappropriate to say. I mean, you can physically say them and no one's going to arrest you for it, but you were never right to say those things <laughs> to begin yeah. with. Um, it's, I, uh, it is, I had a, yeah. I had a law professor that said, you can say hail Hitler in a synagogue. The first amendment protects your right to say it. First amendment also protects the right of the rabbi to punch you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Like (laughs) there are consequences for things that you do, you know? Yes, exactly. And the first, the amendments were not meant to, um, the constitution was not meant to protect us from what happens when we infringe on other people's rights. Um, so your freedom begins where my nose ends. Yep. So, when we talk about companies like Facebook or Google or YouTube, I think the part, part of the conversation has, has come from a place of, okay, well, 
I think first, there's, this is going to be a two-part question. First of all, really, what is their current legal, uh, in, in your understanding, what would be their current legal um, position regarding censorship of content on their platforms, uh, number one? But number two, given that some of these companies like Facebook, specifically Facebook and Google, really control a lot of the dissemination of information where a lot of the population congregate online. <laughs> what um, do you think that there is any sort of reason why they should be subjected to, you know, having to follow or be subjected to being careful about censorship on their platforms or not be able to freely censor whatever's on their platform? Such a tough, we're going to be here forever. If we get into this, it's a tough question, right? Yeah. So the legal standpoint my my standpoint right now is Google, Facebook, Twitter, so on and so forth are not run by the government. They are not owned by the government. They have nothing to do with the government. Therefore, they can censor whatever and whoever they want. Mm. Um, if you read the terms and conditions of YouTube, Facebook, you know, Twitter, whatever, they have very clear hate speech, um, you know, hate, hate speech prohibitions, mm -hmm. Reddit, you know, even, even, even the grosser places of the internet, 4chan, 8chan have hate speech, you know, prohibitions and their terms and conditions. Um, and I'd like to point out that hate speech is protected under the first amendment. Uh, you can, you know, burning a cross is technically protected under the first amendment. It's really the threatening aspect of it. If you burn a cross on a black person's lawn, that's where you run into issue. But if you want to burn a cross in your backyard, the courts will look at the intent and, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah. hate speech is protected. Um, but I guess the issue you, you run into, and this is primarily, um, this is primarily brought up by the right is, you know, well, Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram or whatever are only censoring right-wing views or, or views, conservative views, right? That, that's primarily the argument we hear. And, you know, at, at the risk of, of, of saying something a little controversial myself, have you ever stopped to wonder why they're only censoring right-wing views? Like, have you, ever, have you ever stopped to wonder, like, maybe it's not because they have it out to get you. Maybe it's because the things you're saying aren't good. Or they don't you know? want what you're saying on their platform. I mean, and they have every right to do that. Yeah, that's you know. Well, and and to be fair as well, a five second Google search turned up that they've also censored, quote unquote, or demonetized. That's what most people are talking about when they say censored on YouTube. Yeah, they've also they've also censored um, uh, left left wing uh, channels yeah. as well. So this isn't this isn't just a. Oh, you have, um, it, it's just right wing. No, it's just, that's who you're hearing about because that specifically, that's, who's really going after the, are uh, going after these corporations via lawsuits as well. Yeah. I think, uh, there's a, there's a thing called CDA 230, and that is a seminal statute in internet and communications law. The CDA is the communication decency act and section 230. So for shorthand, it's called CDA 230. Um, there are whole classes in law school built around CDA 230. My internet law class, three quarters of the semester was CDA 230. So we're going to be here a while if I get into the weeds of it. But oh, basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. But basically, CDA 230 says 
no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, which basically boils down and says, if you go on Twitter and you say that Joe Scarborough killed a congressional aide, Twitter can't be held liable for what you said. So yes, Joe Scarborough can't come and bring yes. a lawsuit against Twitter. He can come and bring a lawsuit against, you know, you for saying it, but Joe Scarborough can't come to Twitter and say, you published it. That's mm. not good. You know, now the argument on the argument in favor of Twitter is it's the newsstand argument, right? So say you have a bodega in New York and you have, you know, a couple of magazines and one of those magazines says, you know, uh, Heidi Klum has bat wings, right? Heidi Klum can't come and sue the bodega owner for saying, oh, you, you published this magazine, you put this magazine on yourself and that spread, you know, defamatory content about me. So I'm going to sue you. She can't do that. She can go sue the magazine, but she's not going to go to the bodega and sue the bodega. The issue with that argument is, well, of course, she's not going to sue the bodega because the bodega owner doesn't have any money. She's going to go after the deep pocket. The issue we run into here with online content providers is Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook have money. Mm -hmm. So now these plaintiffs are going after them and saying, oh, well, CDA 230 shouldn't protect you because you published defamatory content. And through your censorship, you should have seen that being defamatory and you should have taken it down. So it's this interesting, it, it's this little, it, it, it's this struggle because CDA 230 offers broad protection, but how do you, when, when, a, when a company says that they are going to be censoring and demonetizing things, how do you say that I'm in charge of censoring, but I'm going to let this defamatory content go forward and then just hide behind CDA 230 because it offers you protection? Gotcha. Okay. So that makes, that makes sense. I, this, this is, I think this is a great thing, both morally and um, morally and kind of legally when it comes to that because of the broadness of this. I mean, I think the world is still trying to figure out how to really even handle internet law to some mm -hmm. degree. So it's not, not like we've got this figured out by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think ethically there are, there are some questions that, that definitely need some answers, but at the same time, I feel like those questions only show up when it's someone I disagree with that's saying something. And yeah. that's, and I think the, the other problem. issue is that I think the other issue is that we have people trying to legislate the internet that don't understand how the internet works. Yeah. When you have, you know, senators asking, Hey, Facebook, how do you make money? And everybody under 40 is like, yeah, duh, ads, they're selling ads. And everybody over 40 that's making the laws is like, what's an ad, you know? So I think mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely a generational disconnect between the, medium and the platform on which information is being spread and the people trying to legislate the laws to help mm. make that platform work for everyone. Do you think, I, this is a completely out of left field question. Um, do you think that if the internet was ever reclassified as a public utility, that that would have any great impact on the way that corporations can censor information on the internet within the U S define public utility as in like the internet becomes a government owned, like a government owned product. 
Yeah, I guess. I, I don't, we, there's been a lot of talk that the internet should be a public utility or should be the same way that electricity or anything else is, um, in that sense. So I guess not necessarily government run. Cause like I have, I have a company that manages my power that I pay, um, mm-hmm. but I have access to it. So I guess the question is, does that have any impact or does that only have impact on whether the government can deny someone access to that internet? I mean, that's, that's almost it. a net neutrality question, you know, yeah. that, that's kind of poking around net neutrality. Um, you know, I think it, it's tricky, right? Because the internet, what is the internet? Like, what is it? Do we even know? <laughs> it's like saying, you know, what is electricity? You know, like yeah. the internet is this thing, you know, this, this information highway that some scientists in, 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 what was the, uh, where they discover it? It was a Stern, Burn, somewhere in Switzerland. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Al Gore discovered the internet. We all know that. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. However inconvenient that truth is. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You know, but the internet is this thing, this nebulous thing that is this information superhighway. And then you're going to say, okay, internet service, I mean, that's what they are. They're internet service providers, Spectrum, Xfinity, you know, Cox, whatever the name of the provider is, they are like the faucet, right? And they turn on the tap and let you have the internet and then they turn it off and you don't pay your bill. So now you're going to tell those ISPs, go away. The government is going to run this. Now, if the government controls the tap, right? Say the government controls the flow of information, which is a whole nother problem. You know, if the government's controlling a flow of information, you basically come China, you know, or Mm -hmm. or some other, you know, country that is the antithesis of America. But let's argue that the, the, the government is, is controlling the flow of information. Then sure. I guess you could argue that first amendment protections could apply to the internet, but don't they already? Because for example, if the government puts out on, I don't know, some government website, uh, state department website and says Hispanics are dirty, right? If the government says that mm-hmm. on, on their, on the state department website, and you're like, well, that's defamatory. And the government can't say that. And then the government says, hey, you know, Hispanics, you can't speak Spanish in America. Well, that sounds like an infringement of speech. Yeah. And the First Amendment would apply to that because the government is acting towards yep. citizens through the Internet. So I don't know if. I don't know if saying that if the Internet was controlled by the government if first amendment protections would apply overall because then the government would own all the social media platforms. The government would run YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth. So in that case, sure, I guess, but one, is that something we want? And two, the first amendment already applies to government actions on the internet. The internet. Yeah. You know, okay, cool. I had never thought about it until we started having this conversation. So I was just yeah. curious. Um, no. So thank you for that answer. And by the way, it was at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. So you were thank right. You, CERN. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I feel this sounds familiar, but I can't. It's Tim Berners Lee. He was the scientist that published the very first website. Gotcha. Um, thank you, Tim. So yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Tim. This goes out to you, Tim. Um, so, do you think, um, 
moral and ethical arguments really have any place in the conversation regarding constitutional rights, like the First Amendment rights and, and potential infringements? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think morality and ethics has, has, always has a place in law, um, a, a huge place in law. That's how we legislate. We, we don't legislate from a place of no morals or like a blank ethical slate. You know, everybody, the, leg, the legislature is legislating from a place of, we like to think, you know, morality. They say yeah. you can't legislate morality, but, you know, I don't, I, you like to believe that they're not legislating immorality. Um, but when it comes to first amendment protections and especially these social media companies, I think once again, if you're, you know, if hypothetically, if you are such a strong proponent of capitalism and if you are a strong proponent of a free, strong market, you're not telling these social media companies you're bound by the first amendment because that one opens them up to insane amounts of lawsuits. Um, mm. you know, that, that frivolous lawsuits, you look at, um, Devin Nunes versus Twitter. How many times has his complaint been dismissed and the judges are laughing him out of court as they should be. There's the, uh, you know, the, the, the Devin Nunes looks like a cow account, which is yep. objectively hilarious, but <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, Devin Nunes is this congressman from California who has literally become a national joke because he keeps trying to sue Twitter and say, oh, you're publishing de you know, defamatory content against me and I'm going to sue you. And Twitter is one hiding behind, you know, the, the, they're using the CDA as a shield, CDA 230 as a shield. And they're also saying, go fuck yourself. Like, you can't sue us because we didn't do anything wrong and we're not bound by the First Amendment. So. Yeah. You know, morality has a place, but there's this, I guess there's this struggle between you can't legislate from morality, you know, you can't legislate morality, but you have to legislate from a moral, morally correct place. And it's this weird, like, pull where you're basically saying, like, you can't tell people what's right and wrong. You have to let people decide for themselves. But you also have to legislate from a place of right because you're looking out for people. Yeah. If that well, makes it, sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, the entire idea of people representing us in writing those laws and, and drafting them is, is, um, is the idea that they're the, the moral, the moral center that they're writing or legislating from becomes the agreed upon moral center that society or the people being represented have, have agreed on. Right. So that, or have operated from, so if, if all of Florida goes, we're against, I don't know, alligators walking in Walmart morally, mm -hmm. um, then we would expect our representatives to go and say, uh, and, and if that was ever a conversation in, in some sort of legislation, we'd say, yeah, well, Florida says we don't really want that. And hopefully other states agree too, right? Yeah. Like that's, that would be, that I guess would be the balance there, but which then it, I feel like then it becomes a chicken or the egg question. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like. Because then you have to, if, as as someone who is a representative, you likely have access to classified information regarding trends or regarding what might be coming in the future, and having to legislate, kind of based on what your what your state or you know constituency might or is most likely to agree with in that those mm -hmm. circumstances. That's that is a very tough line to walk. I feel like. 
Yeah. And, you know, people make the argument and, and they say that, okay, these, these social media companies are controlling the dissemination of information, right? Mm -hmm. They're saying that, okay, you know, if I post this thing on Facebook and I say that, I don't know, Obama was born in Kenya or whatever, right? And Facebook comes and says, hey, you can't say that. That's false. Is it really bad for a company to censor things that are spreading false information? I don't necessarily disagree. You know, I'm okay with Facebook or Twitter coming and saying, hey, you can't tell lies like that because that is bad. But the problem with Facebook and Twitter is that they're not doing it wholesale. You know, you have Russian trolls on Facebook, yeah. on Twitter saying all of these things that are clearly disseminating false information. You have it on Facebook as well. You know, all of the deep fakes and all of the actual fake news. So I think social media companies need to do a better job at censoring all of the fakes as opposed to just cherry picking, you know, cherry picking things that people might have a disagreement with one way or the other. Well, I think there's, there's, there's also the argument that really they're, they're making decisions based off of, I mean, their businesses at the end of the day, they're making decisions on with censorship regarding what will cost them money. And if advertisers are freaking out because of a video that's got, that's getting a lot of traction and popularity, um, then they don't want to lose the advertisers. They'd rather lose the content before they lose the advertisers. So they're going to make decisions. The censorship is applied in an unfair or an uneven manner because they have to deal with whatever the biggest problem is to their income or their revenue stream. Yeah. Like I, I, I think, I think the other thing we have to realize is that America is a lot more liberal or at least a lot more moderate than we think. Um, that was a controversial statement. I'm really excited for this explanation. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that America is a lot more moderate than we think. Let's take Trump voters, for example, Trump voters in 2016. Okay. Not talking about now, you know, 2020, but let's take 2016. Okay. You had a lot of people that voted for a lot of Republicans that voted for Trump, not because they agreed with him, but because they didn't want to bring Hillary in. But those same Republicans, right? Let's the, the Romneys, the flakes, the, uh, you know, more moderate Republicans. And I'm not making excuses for their actions because how they've conducted themselves since he got elected is appalling. But a lot of those Republicans wouldn't consider themselves these, you know, extreme Tea Party right-wingers. And even our version of liberalism anywhere else in the world is basically moderate. Yes, so, I have seen, yes, I had, I've seen that on a regular basis where like Europeans have said that Bernie Sanders is like centrist to them. Yeah. yeah. So when I say America is a lot more moderate than you think, you got to look at it from a global perspective. Mm. And you also have to realize that the extreme right wing in this country has co-opted the media. Fox News is still the most watched network on television. Yeah. More than CNN, more than MSNBC, more than any other network. So when, you know, Trump and the right are complaining that the media is, is fake and run by the liberals, that's simply not true. Because they have the biggest corner of the media. Fox News is the most watched network. So what happens when you're the most watched network? Your message gets out more. 
But if you ask people, you know, on the street, hey, do you think people should be treated fairly? Hey, do you think that people should, you know, and I'm not saying like make these questions overtly political and lead people one way or the other, but hey, do you think people should be treated fairly? Hey, do you think that, you know, you should die if you can't afford healthcare? You know, just very basic questions. I think a lot of times, you know, your random person on the street will say, yeah, like, I think people should be treated fairly. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to die if I can't afford, you know, my treatment. You know, I, I, I think that a lot of people would probably be like, yeah, like, that's cool with me. I think the issue is people have a problem with who presents that message. Gotcha. I think that's, I think that's the bigger issue. Filtered. It's, it's who it's being filtered through or what it's being filtered through versus anything else. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. When you look at the backlash to the affordable care act, um, Mitt Romney had, had, had basically made the affordable care act in Massachusetts. Massachusetts was running on socialized medicine. Nobody had an issue with it. President Obama comes through and tries to make it national policy. And all of a sudden it's socialism. Where was the problem when the Republican governor made that a thing in Massachusetts? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Makes sense. Funny you bring up healthcare considering I uh, burned my hand while cooking last night and it was late enough that I was like, I'm paying off a surgery still. I have zero interest in another ER bill. So I'm just going to wait and hope that this doesn't kill me. Um, which turns out, it's, I think it's just a first degree burn, maybe mildly a second. I, I grabbed the handle of a stainless steel pot after pulling it out after I didn't pull it out of the oven like this, but it was a few minutes after I pulled it out of a 400 degree oven. Um, yeah, I thought I just, I, it was my first time cooking with a stainless steel pot that way. So I like, normally I just use it to cook stuff and the, the handle's mm-hmm. not hot. So I just grabbed it to move the food off the stove to somewhere else and immediately let go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you uh, cooked your own hand. <laughs> my my palm has be- seen better days. Um, Yikes! The, but no, I agree with that. Then um, I I would agree with the moderate statement, and I think that was a really good explanation for it. So thank you. <laughs> that <Yeah>. was fun. <laughs> I knew that was um, going to raise a lot of eyebrows, and I was like, let's unpack this for a little bit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So okay, I don't want to spend this whole episode telling people like, be quiet about the First Amendment when you're talking about corporations or whatever. You know, just you're you're overblowing it. I I I really want to see. I think it's worth exploring what are some of the areas in public discourse or whatever, or some, some warning flags that we're, we should be looking for or some things we should be paying attention to uh, regarding First Amendment rights. So I think the, the big issue here, here's the, how do I put this? So there has been this movement, right, to censor Trump on Twitter and Trump and other politicians, I'd like to mention Trump also, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez ran into trouble with this as well. So it's coming from both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. They have been blocking people that disagree or, or post tweets and replies to their tweets that disagree with their views. Trump did it to, um, oh God, who did he do it to? Uh, I'm forgetting his name, but he, sure, he's yeah. a well- Yeah, you and know he just yeah. did it to another, he did it to another uh, like yeah. joke account recently. But Trump has also blocked journalists too. And if you look mm. at, you know, the Acosta issue, uh, when, when Jim Acosta was CNN, he was asking questions of Trump and Trump revoked his press pass, you know, at, at the White House, which I got to work on my first year in New York, which was an amazing experience. Um, the, the defense of CNN, which was 
awesome to work on. But back to Twitter, if you look at like Trump, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, they have blocked people that disagree with their views on Twitter. And there have been lawsuits brought that basically say that's a violation of the First Amendment. And, Mm. you know, one might ask how, like, how is that a violation of the First Amendment? They don't want to see, you know, you disagreeing with them. They don't want to deal with it. Well, the problem is they're government actors. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a representative in the United States Congress. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. They are blocking people on official government accounts. The Mm. courts have started to construe that as a government action. So the First Amendment is applying to social media in that way. It's just not applying to the companies. The courts have much more decided to apply it to the users of the social media as opposed to the publishers. And I think that ties back to the protections of CDA 230. And I do believe that CDA 230 will change as the understandings of the internet move on because the CDA was drafted back. Let me, I'll pull it up right now. The CDA was drafted back in 1996. So the birth of the internet. Yeah. They couldn't even like, they didn't even know what Twitter, if you went back in 1996 and said, Hey, we have this thing called Twitter where you can put your thoughts in 140 characters and literally shape global policy from pooping on the toilet. Yep. You know, back in 96, they'd be like, what, what is that? So like the CDA, especially 230, probably will go through many different permutations as we move forward with our understanding of the internet and, and how communication works. It just hasn't yet. Um, and I think that's something that we need to keep in mind in that because the courts are slow to change doesn't mean they won't. They just, they're, they're, they're working up to it. So when you look at, you know, courts saying that Trump, Ocasio-Cortez, other politicians can't block people from their official Twitter profiles, it's really the court putting the First Amendment into social media but declining to apply it to public, or sorry, de- declining to a, declining to apply it to private companies such as Twitter and Facebook, and saying once again, the First Amendment applies to the government and government actors. So I think that's kind of that's kind of how you have to look at it. Um, yeah, it's really what is the, like the First Amendment was built for the government towards the citizens, not citizens to citizens. Okay, that makes sense, and and I think. I agree with it going to the users rather than the corporations. I mean, Twitter, YouTube, Google, whatever, none of them have any, any reason or any obligation to declare themselves politically one way, the other or neutral. Um, and if we're going to argue that they should allow a, a, B or C on their platforms, then we should also argue that any of these conservative websites or leftist websites should uh, be, should have to publish anything from the other side, anything that's submitted from the other side. Like there's no, the, the, if we want to talk about slippery slope, that's a real one. (laughs) A, that's a quick one too. I I think, um, Oh, I just had it and I lost it. Darn it. It was, it was there. And the thought is gone. 
No. Um, <laughs> oh well, maybe I'll get it back. Um, ideally, let me just ask this, and if I if I think of it again, I'll I'll interrupt you. Um, what what do you what do you hope for uh, for the American people or anyone who lives with First Amendment rights? Um, what what do you what is your what is your kind of ideal for us as we interact with with our with our amendment rights? You know, I want people I want people to really understand what the protections are. Um, and I feel like the first has been a little bit perverted by people who don't either a don't understand it or b understand it and find arguments to support or create arguments to support their incorrect views of it. Um, you know, you have people going out and saying, well, wearing a mask in the middle of a pandemic, that's an infringement on my freedom of speech because it has been, you know, courts have determined that, um, expression is speech. So once again, if I'm wearing that jacket that says, you know, F the draft or F Bush or whatever, that is an expression and expression is protected speech. So I really, I really want people to understand the rights provided to them and the rights that they don't have. And I think it's really understanding that there are limits to freedom, limits to the amendment, limits to the constitution. And it's not, you know, just go do whatever you want whenever you do it and don't worry about it. Um, you know, laws, rules, consequences, those, those are kind of what makes society. Every, you know, action has an equal and opposite reaction. So, you know, once again, just if I, if I go to a synagogue and say, hail Hitler, and I end up getting hit, like that is how society works. It's a consequence of my actions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first isn't an absolute privilege per se. It's more so a qualified right. And it's also limited to government actions. And I think that's the other thing people, you know, I really want people to understand. It's just the, the, the constitution as it was written was written to protect the people from the government. They didn't want it to turn into England, you know, yeah. at the time. They didn't want it to turn into tyranny, a monarchy, whatever. So it was really written to protect people from the government, not from each other. And I think that kind of gets lost in different interpretations of, you know, what the document and what the amendment really is. Yeah. Well, Ironically, I remembered what I was going to say. I actually wrote it down, and uh, it goes perfectly with what you just said, too, which is that I think not only understanding our rights is important, and I would agree with everything you say, but I'd say uh, keeping up with what's going on, too. You mentioned that just because the courts are slow to change doesn't mean they won't change, and I would, I would actually say that slow change is the more dangerous of the two. I mean, it also has the most potential for you know really good legislative work happening because it's not rushed. But at the same time, uh, what, I forget what it's called, where um, we've seen it with a lot of what happened, what's happened with with news about Trump, where people just get fatigue. Um, I forget what it's called. It's not crisis fatigue, but it's essentially the same thing where it's like um, mm -hmm. it's issue after issue after issue after issue. And we just get tired of it. And we're and then suddenly we are willing to accept things that we weren't willing to accept before because we're just so tired of expending the energy fighting it. Um, yeah. 
And if the courts are slow to change, but their impact, you know, they're enacting change little by little and they're going in a direction we don't like, but we're too tired <laughs> to pay attention or we're, we're not paying attention at all, then like that's where I think rights can be eroded, eroded the most mm-hmm. um, or there's the most potential for that. So I, I would say in addition to all of that, I, I, I would hope that people are paying attention to what's going on. Um, interacting with the news, interacting with several different news sources um, as much as possible, not just different subreddits. Um, That was was as much a shot to me as it was to anyone else. Um, But I I think there's a a need for us to really be intentional about keeping up with this stuff and not allowing ourselves uh, to be fatigued by any changes that come. So that's what I want to say. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I really like that you brought that point up because it's very easy to get just complacent and just be like, okay, fine, whatever. It doesn't affect me right now. It will. It may not affect you, you know, five years from now, but 15 years from now, it might, you know, and I think that it's very important to, you know, no matter how annoying and and just aggravating you think CNN is or, you know, Fox or whatever news source you, you listen to or watch or read, I think it's very, 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 very important to stay on top of the issues because while it may not affect you immediately, it will. At some point, something will change and it will. And then you're in the position of, oh, shoot, you know, if I had paid attention to this, if I had, you know, if I had lobbied my congressman harder here, or if, you know, I had voted this way. And this part, you know, this part of, of, of the, the time cycle, I wouldn't be in this position. You know, it, it's, yeah. it reminds me of, uh, what's that quote? It was the first they came for the Jews, but oh, they didn't come yes. for me, so I didn't care. You know, like, it, it, it's almost like that. Yeah. That quote ends with, like, then they came for me and there was nobody left to defend me. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that does make me think of... Um, the, the the when you mentioned the masks that that definitely makes me think of um i think i tweeted about this the other day i was i was i got heated about it when i thought about it but like a lot of people are totally okay with kids having to go to school through metal detectors and um all these you know and having to do active shooter drills and all of these daily interruption or daily or weekly interruptions to their day to their life to their education uh, in order for us to preserve our first or you know our second amendment right to guns but then those are the same people crying foul at having to wear masks to protect others. So it's like you're okay with 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 other people being inconvenienced, and you would call that just the price of freedom. But the second it becomes about your inconvenience, then that's just tyrannical, right? And and well, think so about it this way: three thousand people died on nine eleven, and it changed the way we travel forever. Yep, a hundred thousand people are dead in three months. Yeah. And you have people saying wearing a mask is an infringement on my rights. Yep. That's wild to me. Now I will say there are a lot of people and I would in a, to very some small extent be one of them to say that I think we changed probably too much after nine 11 as in response to 3000. Um, but at the same time, uh, there, this is this is what 30 to- 33 times that amount yeah. <laughs> so um there's there's certainly call i i, I th- 
think there's a fair call that that things need to change, and there are some there are some things that we need to be willing to do as a society in order to protect one another. Um, mm-hmm. There, I don't think yeah, there's ever yeah. been a. Go ahead, you're good. No, no, no. Sorry, I interrupted. Go for it. Uh, I was just gonna say I don't think there's ever been a time in history where all of us were as big of a threat to each other, or could be a threat to each other as we are now, just by existing near near one another. And for someone like me who has asthma and is very high risk for me, um, like that's a scary thought. And I don't see people as some enemy or threat. I'm just saying I wish we would be a little bit more considerate of the fact that we could harm people without ever intending to or knowing mm-hmm. that we've done so. I, uh, I had a friend that said something very poignant to me that kind of shocked me a little bit that he said it. But it, it, you know, when you think about it, he says, the American ideal of freedom will be the death of this country. Mm. And like, when you really unpack that, you know, this American idea of I'm free, I'm in America and I can do what I want because I'm free. So because you're free, you won't wear a mask. So because you're free, you'll, you'll, you know, perpetuate hate speech and that's okay. Yeah. Because you're free, you'll, you know, retweet news that says that the coronavirus is a bad flu coming from someone who had it and can tell you it's not, you know, it's like when people start using this idea of freedom as, you know, I can do what I want and I don't really care how it affects other people. That's going to end up real bad for us, man. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not going to be a road we want to go down. It's, it's like the, it's like the, countrywide application of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, yeah. That's essentially what it, what it boils yeah. down to. Exactly. So, exactly. Wow. Well, uh, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been a really cool conversation. It's been cool catching up with you again. I do want you to know that over the weekend, as I was prepping for this interview, I was jamming out to disloyal order of the water buffaloes. Uh, and, it's a great song. <laughs> uh, sugar, we're going down and some old fallout boy. Cause that's what you and I used to talk about all the time. Um, and I, I just want you to know, I appreciate you. I'm really proud of what you're doing. Um, and re- it's really cool to see you be successful and, um, for you to do what you're passionate about. So I just want to affirm you in all of that. Um, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Um, and yeah, any final thoughts, any, or, you know, anything that you want to share with listeners before, um, before I sign us off. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan and I have known each other a very long time. i uh, been good friends for a very long time. And, you know, a lot of times we would, you know, talk and disagree. And I, I, I value the fact that you were never afraid to challenge how I saw something the way I saw something. So I, I, I just want to let you know that, that that is something I've always valued about being your friend. Um, but you know, just to, to, to go back to what we were talking about, you know, I just, I, I, I want people to be aware, not just of their rights, but how they're being interpreted. Because it's one thing to say, you know, okay, the First Amendment guarantees me freedom of speech. It's a wholly other thing to say, what, I know what freedom of speech means, or what does freedom of speech mean? Mm. And I think once we can kind of, as a country, come to that understanding of, this is what it actually means, then we can start having more meaningful conversations about, you know, how do we work with social media companies? How do we work with the internet? How do we work with each other? How do we work with the government? You know, but it's almost like having 
a puzzle and you're missing a piece and a puzzle is never going to be complete unless you have that piece. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's very important for, you know, your listeners and, and everybody kind of, you know, as a whole to get that second piece of the puzzle and say, okay, I know I have this freedom. Now, how does it apply? What does it mean? Um, that's almost more important than just saying, I know I have this freedom. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. I appreciate you again. And thank you for the compliment. Um, I'm glad you take my my uh, rebellion and social abrasiveness as uh, a good thing. Uh, that means the world. Um, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Um, we appreciate you and appreciate all the support that you give this show. Um, go check out any relevant links to anything we've talked about in the show notes. Um, and you know, we'll see you next week. Bye.